0: Welcome back to Core Conversations, a CoreLogic podcast. I am your host, May-Claire Bolton-Smith, and I'm the Senior Leader of Research and Content Strategy with CoreLogic. In this podcast, we'll have conversations with industry experts about key topics from housing affordability to the impacts of natural disasters on property. So far in this podcast, we've talked about earthquakes, hurricanes, hail, and extreme cold. Today, we're going to talk about another very common peril, tornadoes. The U.S. has the highest frequency of tornadoes globally, with an average over 1,000 recorded each year. Canada, a distant second, has around 100 tornadoes annually. So it's no wonder that the American collective consciousness is filled with its appearance, whether it's Dorothy getting swept away to Oz or Pecos Bill suing a twister. But in real life, tornadoes aren't nearly as charming as the stories make them out to be. They can arrive relatively unannounced and with their hundreds of miles an hour winds decimate everything in their paths before disappearing, destroying homes and lives in the process. So far this year has been devastating for tornadoes across the Midwest and the Southeast U.S. So for our episode today, I'm joined by Curtis McDonald, meteorologist and senior product manager for Weather Forensic Solutions to talk about one of his greatest passions, tornadoes. Curtis, welcome to CORE Conversations.
1: Thanks, McClare. I'm so excited to be here and, yes, talk about one of my favorite uh, weather phenomenons, tornadoes. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for being here. So to get started today, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your role here at CoreLogic?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as May-Claire mentioned, I'm a product manager, and uh, my background is actually in meteorology. Um, so I oversee a wide suite of our uh, forensic weather products here at CoreLogic. So we, we have developed a, a unique set of proprietary algorithms that allow us to derive uh, numerous different uh, actual products, uh, ranging from uh, mapping hailstorms to mapping uh, straight-line winds and hurricanes, as well as uh, tornadoes. So that's what we're here today to talk about. Um, and I uh, uh, work through that from a product perspective, and, and building out, and working with our clients to understand how uh, they can leverage these these tools and these technologies to help solve the problems that they face, uh, specifically within the the insurance industry.
0: Great. So in episode two of this podcast, we featured Dr. Daniel Betton, who I know is not only a close colleague, but also a close friend of yours. And the two of you have storm chased together. So Daniel shared with us how he was fascinated by weather and storm chasing as a young child. Was that the same for you? Have you? How did you know you wanted to be a meteorologist?
1: Yeah, also very very similar story to Daniel. So I actually, uh, I grew up outside of St. Louis, uh, Missouri, and uh, one of my earliest memories as a child uh, was the, the Great Flood of, of 1993. So that, uh, I got hooked on really watching that uh, coverage of that over the course of the, really the entire summer of 93, um, and that really just led to my fascination of weather even further, Uh, In addition, my my mother, she was uh, pretty terrified of thunderstorms. So anytime we had thunderstorms, she would... um, uh, you know, almost pack her bags and, and, you know, take us down to the basement no matter what. So I think that also spurred some interest of why uh, she was so, f- uh, you know, fascinated and concerned and panicked really around thunderstorm. So I think those kind con- of combinations led me to uh, really always be, as, as long as I can remember, very interested in weather, uh, ultimately led the decision to uh, move to Oklahoma and attend the University of Oklahoma for my uh, schooling.
0: Wow. Well, I can uh, identify with your mother there too, getting scared by them. So, um, does your mother get scared when you're storm chasing and putting yourself in harm's way? I just have to ask.
1: (laughs) Yes. uh, Well, I think initially she did, but uh, you know, I've been doing it now for almost 15 years or over 15 years, I guess, and uh, seeing over well over 100 tornadoes. I think it's a little bit um, easier for her, and I actually uh convinced her to come out with me once, and oh, wow. uh, so she got to see a, a tornado herself, so I think that also helped, but uh, she said that would be her her last. It was her first and her last, but. <laughs> well,
0: I think I would be along with her there. So, okay, well, let's dive into tornadoes. So most most weather phenomena are seasonal. We know that hurricanes occur in the summer and in the fall. Winter storms obviously occur in the winter, and the spring usually sees most severe weather, like hail, lightning, and tornadoes. So is tornado season the same across the country? And are there areas that are more at risk to, uh, than others?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a, a great question. And, and really, they're, you know, the peak of tornado activity or tornadic activity, rather, is, is occurring in uh, the months of April and May across the U.S. But uh, tornadoes can really occur at any point uh, throughout the entire calendar year. Oh, wow. um, but the there's a couple of things that we can look at in terms of... Uh, delineating areas that might be highest at risk in any given year. Uh, so one things that uh, drive uh, severe weather activity, uh, primarily in, in parts of the Plain States and into Dixie Alley or the Southeast is La Nina or El Nino. So that's a condition of, of the coolings of the, the surface waters out in the uh, Ectoral Pacific, whether it's uh, if it's cooling, uh, cooler than average, that's going to be a La Nina. If they're warmer than average, that's going to be an El Nino. Uh, And this year we are uh, in a a moderate La Nina, uh, which uh, typically translate to more severe weather uh, earlier on in the the spring season across Dixie Alley. And we've certainly seen that this year already uh, across parts of Mississippi, Alabama, uh, Mm -hmm. Georgia, with some, unfortunately, some deadly tornadoes that we've already uh, experienced. Um, But as the season kind of, Uh, goes later as we go into April and May we'll start to see typically start to see that uh, the greatest threat areas for um, Tornadoes and severe thunderstorms in general starting to shift to the north and and west So as we approach uh, April we will start seeing uh, as we're in April start seeing more activity in uh, Oklahoma and Texas and as we go into May we'll start seeing that kind of start to spread northward uh, into uh, parts of Kansas, Missouri, Arkansas uh, and then as we go into uh, maybe the, the late spring and into the summer months, it'll even uh, go even further north uh, into the central and northern plains. Uh, and then as we get into the mid to late summer, that's when uh, Canada typically sees its most active uh, tornadic activity. So just in general, uh, as we uh, head from uh, early spring to mid to late summer, it's, it's going to shift from kind of the southeast Dixie Alley and then northwest all the way up into to Canada.
0: Interesting, and you mentioned Dixie Alley, and I think most people are familiar with Tornado Alley, and Tornado Alley is further is more the Midwest, Oklahoma, correct? Oklahoma, Kansas ish area, Dorothy country.
1: Yeah. So some of the, I mean, it's just the, the delineation and, and just okay. typically we see, um, you know, uh, historically speaking in, in the months of April and May, that's where you have the most of the tornadoes occurring is uh, your your kind of classic tornado alley, if you will, kind of stretches from North Texas through Oklahoma and Kansas and in parts of Missouri mm-hmm. and Nebraska. Uh, but Dixie Alley is certainly uh, an area that uh, gets just as, as many tornadoes, if not more. And as we uh, some interesting things as we see um, as uh, social media and cell phones and technology, um, you're having a lot more, uh, you are able to capture a lot more of those tornadoes in those areas. And it's, it's, I think it's largely due to the fact that, uh, historically speaking, you know, we have a lot of trees and, and a lot of uh, terrain issues for seeing tornadoes in the southeast. So a lot of those uh, have gone unrecorded uh, or reported uh, versus out in the Plain States, you can see, uh, you know, tornadoes for... You know, it's upwards of 10 to 15 miles away. Uh, You don't have that luxury, uh, really, in Dixie Alley. So a lot of the times, uh, you know, especially back through the, you know, the 70s, 80s, you know, when cell phones weren't prevalent, you know, a lot of those tornadoes were occurring. They just weren't being reported. Um, So, in fact, some of the more recent research, there's actually more tornadic activity uh, across parts of Dixie Alley versus the, you know, classic Tornado Alley, if you will.
0: Wow, that that's really interesting. And and when I look at this year in particular, we've seen so much activity and and devastating, as you mentioned, in Georgia and Alabama, and so that would be considered Dixie Alley.
1: Correct. Yeah, yeah, in, in parts of Tennessee as well. Um, you know, okay. really just in that that general Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee.
0: Okay. So. I guess if we, you know, if we look back at, at this year in particular, and, and thinking back in recent years, I, I know when I look at, I, I look back at, you know, in my childhood and history, there's a lot of really devastating tornadoes that stood out to me. Um, I grew up in Canada. I know there was one in Edmonton when I was a child that was probably one of the worst ones that we'd, we'd ever had in Canada at the time. Um, but in recent years, 2011 really stands out. Joplin, Missouri. Um If we look at, you know, the history and and the 2021 season and, and kind of the history, like what's the most severe we've seen this year so far and how does it compare to some of those big ones in history?
1: Yeah, so we certainly saw, as I mentioned early on, um, in in Georgia, we saw an, an EF four tornado that already took place this year, and, and unfortunately did uh, take take several lives. Um, it was a very long track tornado. We've seen actually several long track tornadoes this year uh, in in March, and particularly late March. Um, in terms of you know how they relate to the two thousand eleven season, two thousand eleven was um, you know, certainly a once in a generation type uh, year, uh, for mm-hmm. sure, in terms of the not only the number of tornadoes that we saw, but the the strength of those tornadoes. Um, tornadoes are occurring every single year, but we typically don't see uh, widespread uh EF4, EF5 tornadoes, which 2011 we saw that on numerous different events, different uh, outbreaks. Uh, April 27th being the one of the largest in uh, in history, and that's going to be the the Dixie Alley area. That was the Tuscaloosa, Alabama uh, tornado that took place, right. and then later on in May is when the Joplin tornado occurred, which uh, killed over 100 people, uh, which is really um, uh, staggering and just uh, just think about from. Uh, uh, perspective of, you know, where we're at and, and, and from a technology perspective. Um, so you got to kind of go back uh, from, you know, back in the, I think it's the 19, mid 1920s when we had the tri-state tornado, which uh, was the, the from a, a fatality perspective, the most devastating tornado that's uh, on the books from a historical mm-hmm. perspective. So
0: you mentioned tri-states. Can you just define which states were impacted?
1: Yeah. So that, that's uh, the Tornado that tracked through southern Missouri, southeastern Missouri, through all of Illinois, and then actually went into uh, Indiana. So that was the three states oh. that were impacted oh. back in the mid
0: uh, 1920s. Wow. So you also you mentioned the EF scale a few times, and I know people that watch Twister are familiar a little <laughs> bit with tornado scales. But can you can you talk just a little bit about the enhanced Fujita scale and what the different levels are and the levels of damage and what they all mean. I think that's just important for us to kind of clarify.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's very similar. I think more people are, are familiar with the, um, the hurricane scale. So rating a, a mm. hurricane from a category one uh, to uh, category five. We have something very similar on the the tornado scale. It's it's based upon um, the, the wind speeds and, and in essence uh, the amount of damage that those tornadoes cause. Uh, so it does uh, start out at EF0, which stands for, uh, as you already mentioned, Claire, Enhanced Fujita. So it used to be just the F scale. Um, but uh, I think it was probably about 10 years ago or so, uh, we went through and, and re uh, re-evaluated some of the wind speeds. And it's now, uh, we have the Enhanced Fujita scale. Um, so that ranges from an EF0 uh, all the way up to an EF5. Uh, EF5 being the most significant, and that really uh, equates to uh, wind speeds that exceed 200 miles per hour. Uh, will receive mm. an EF5 rating, and and really when you get to wind speeds at that uh, that magnitude, uh, there's really not um, much that is not going to be impacted by. By that. So that's when you'll you'll see, um, you know, homes being completely uh, wiped off their foundation. You just left with essentially a concrete slab. Uh, so those are the, the most devastating tornadoes. And unfortunately, they make up a very small percentage of the tornadoes that occur, uh, but they certainly can be uh, extremely uh, destructive.
0: Wow. Well, thank you for that. Okay. And just bouncing back to the tri-state tornado again. So it, would that one be considered the most devastating tornado in history then?
1: Yeah, I think it, it really just how you classified uh, the term devastating, because when you look mm-hmm. at tornadoes, there's, um, you know, the, the more significant piece is the loss of life. Um, and then there's also the financial impacts uh, from a tornado. Um, you know, the, the most deadly uh, tornado from that perspective was the tri-state tornado where uh, the, the records show, I think, uh, over 600 uh, fatalities occurred with that uh, oh, storm or that tornado. Uh, So pretty significant. Um, And then from a loss perspective, uh, from a dollar uh, uh, perspective, the Joplin tornado, Joplin, Missouri tornado in 2011 um, with uh, losses uh, approaching or some estimates are now exceeding uh, three billion dollars from total damages from that tornado.
0: Wow. Just it's absolutely frightening and terrifying and, and just devastating what they what tornadoes can do because of the way they just can decimate everything in their paths, And that's what makes them so scary, which is why I'm not sure why you like chasing them. But <laughs> I do I do want to jump into this a little bit, because you did mention, and we talked a little bit up, off the top, that you are a storm chaser. And over the years, you have sent me some pretty terrifying photos when you were out in the field and videos. And can you just talk about a little bit about your experience doing some tornado chasing and I know you, yeah. Just tell yeah, us a little bit yeah. about why you do it and, and, and what you've seen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, when I came to the school back in, in 2005, uh, my first storm chase actually was uh, what I consider my first real storm chase. Now I did some, uh, as soon as I got my driver's license, and even before I got my driver's license, I convinced my mom actually to drive me around. Uh, it took a lot to, to get her to do that given that wow. she does have a fear of storms. But, um, once I got into school and met other uh, people like Daniel, uh, you talked about, mm-hmm. uh, became good friends with him. You know, we really got, I really got into storm chasing, uh, starting in 2005. 2006. And uh, I really chased um, a lot in the spring of 2006, and we didn't see uh, really anything in the spring. Um, however, I loved every aspect of it. I loved going out and seeing this the, the structure of the thunderstorms, these supercell thunderstorms that are producing these uh, tornadoes, um, you know, seeing the, the large hail and just being able to experience that firsthand. Um, you know, really doesn't do justice just learning about it in a textbook. So going out into the field and seeing it and just seeing how these storms you know, breathe and live is, is something that's uh, hard to describe. Um, but then as time went on, my first tornado that I actually saw was in um, in September of 2006. It was actually in the fall. Uh, it was actually in South Dakota. So we drove from Oklahoma all the way up to South Dakota. Uh, and I got to experience my, my first real tornado and uh, just something that uh, I obviously never forget, um, and then from there, like I said, I was I was hooked and went on to. Uh, do it quite quite heavy, I would say, through through college. Um, you know, me and uh, Daniel and some other friends, we started our own business doing it. Um, you know, selling uh, videos to news networks and and so forth. Oh, but wow. uh, during that time, you know, I've seen, like I mentioned, uh, over a hundred tornadoes now, including uh, the the Moore EF five tornado that occurred in in two thousand and thirteen. Wow. Um, two thousand thirteen was a, a pretty significant year uh, for for tornadoes as well. Um, and and for me, from a I guess a, a chasing career perspective, I uh, back to back to back days. I saw an EF four tornado uh, in Kansas, followed by an EF four tornado in Oklahoma uh, on the east side of Oklahoma City near a town called Shawnee, Oklahoma. And then the very next day uh, was the the more EF five tornado. So going three back to back days of EF four. Uh, two back-to-back days of EF four, and then the third day in EF five. Something that, uh, from a, a career perspective, I'll probably never top. Um, and hopefully, I don't. I don't, um, because the you know the Moore tornado was, was one that actually you know impacted and and uh, destroyed a lot of lives, unfortunately. Yeah. And a wow. big city. So. Wow.
0: Um yeah and I actually was in Oklahoma a few years after and still saw some of the damage from the Moore Oklahoma tornado. It was just unbelievable the the impact that it did it did have. So I guess if we kind of relate your I love how you call it your storm chasing career um to kind of what we do here at CoreLogic and can you talk a little bit about what do you do with the data and observations that you're collecting while you're storm chasing and how we work that into some of the products at CoreLogic?
1: Yeah, so one of the, the very unique things that we do at CoreLogic is we have developed a very robust way of incorporating um, not only the weather radar data um, mm. for some of our proprietary models and algorithms. Um, these are the weather radars that, um, there's there's over a hundred of those across the US and they, they're sending out pulses of energy that measure uh, different particulates uh, within the atmosphere. So raindrops, hailstones, um, but it can even pick up on like insects and birds. Um, it gives us information back, um, you know, what's going on from a a storm perspective. Um, However, there's significant limitation to just utilizing the weather radar data. Um, One of the biggest limitations is as you move out away from uh, the weather radar in space, so our geography rather, um, you know, due to the curvature of the earth, that radar is looking further and further up off the ground. So uh, if you move out from a weather radar, let's say 100 miles or so, you might be looking, You know, eight to 10,000 feet above the ground. So a lot can change, let's say, from a hailstone perspective um, or even a tornado. You might not even see the tornado uh, looking 10,000 feet above the ground. So there's things that we have to do to overcome those limitations of the weather radar and uh, by building in the quality controlled ground observations. Um, so coming in from, you know, either from ourselves when we're out storm chasing or coming in from social media, uh, or other sources that we have, we, we actually look at every single observation, every single report um, is looked at by a meteorologist before it then goes into our our algorithm. And then it again works to help overcome those limitations of the weather radar itself.
0: Wow, that, that's fascinating. It's really interesting. And I, I love how, you know, social media has become a tool that can really be used to build data, up, build up a data resource and really help to influence and um, improve products, which I'm not sure anybody really ever anticipated when social media launched.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's a lot of uh, there's probably a lot of good that comes out of social media. There is mm-hmm. some bad too, so we have that's yeah. why we have to look quality at quality control every <laughs> quality control that stuff. So we have to look at every single report just to make sure that it is uh, make sure it's valid and makes sense uh, before it goes into our our algorithms. Absolutely.
0: Sure. Yeah. Wow. So, managing tornado risk is important for insurers and financial institutions. Um, at CoreLogic, we like to say, know your risk to help accelerate your recovery. We Here, we look both at the risk before and after the storm. And before, we know it's important to help manage and mitigate the risk, but I want to talk more about the after part. So, weather forensic data is really vital in helping understand damage patterns and potential impacts in a relatively short amount of time. So, can you tell us a little bit more about weather forensic data and how it's used and how it can help the insurance industry?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, one of the the more important things with with tornadoes is understanding uh, as quick as you can um, the uh, the magnitude in terms of you know how strong it was, how wide it was, how long was it on mm-hmm. the ground, um, and a lot of that information is very hard to come by um, immediately after a tornado. There's just a lot of chaos. There's a lot of com- you know, communication channels are uh, are down. Um, you know, and, and sometimes, in, in, in a lot of cases, tornadoes are occurring at night. Um, so it makes it even more difficult right. to, to mm-hmm. see what's, uh, what has been impacted. Uh, so with our technology, you know, what was one thing that we really wanted to provide value in is just the timeliness of it. So we have a, a solution that updates uh, every uh, 15 minutes. Uh, so, again, aggregating that weather radar data with the observational data uh, we're able to output, uh, you know, with confidence, uh, probability levels of where we think the the tornadic damage occurred. Um, and for the insurance side of things, uh, being able to overlay all of their policies or their customers and quickly know uh, which ones were likely impacted is, is very valuable. Um, mm-hmm. So instead of waiting, um, you know, maybe the next day uh, or the next uh, afternoon, an actual claim comes in from the customer, they can get ahead of the uh, ahead of that by utilizing our uh our data and understanding again, how many of their customers potentially were impacted.
0: Wow. Yeah. So that near, I mean, almost near real time Intel just to help um, moving forward with processing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So I guess that would then in turn from a homeowner's perspective, potentially help speed up payments, claim payments for a homeowner.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, as quick, as quick as uh, the, as we can, we get that information out, and then the uh, the insurance um, will uh, use that information to mobilize their response to that tornado or that storm. Um, so having, you know, as quick as they can get that information, the quicker they can get their resources uh, into motion, uh, as well as, you know, maybe even start working a claim before a claim actually even gets filed by the homeowner. Wow,
0: that's unbelievable. That's great. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked about this with hurricanes and with winter storms as well. So, can you say anything about climate change and what it might mean for the future of tornadoes and severe weather?
1: Yeah, it's a, a great question, and I think there's there's still a lot of unknowns in this in this area for sure. And, and one of the biggest mm-hmm. reasons for that is when you think about uh, tornadoes, the size of them compared to a hurricane and in, in, uh, a winter storm, for example, it's much smaller. So, in terms of you know saying uh, with certainty what exactly is going to happen from a, a increase or decrease from a tornado perspective is is very challenging. Uh, One thing that we can uh, look at is the severe and convective storm, which is thunderstorms in general or severe storms uh, producing hail and and strong winds and tornadoes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what could happen with those? And one of the things, there's there's really two components of um, severe thunderstorms that drive uh, the severity of those storms and it's it really comes down to uh, wind shear as well as uh, instability instability is made up of um, first off you need to have very warm and moist air at the surface so near the the ground um, and as surface temperatures rise globally you know we can see uh, increased moisture content at the surface so that increased moisture content can lead to essentially greater instability um, and one of the other things though, on the opposite side of this is, is the wind shear perspective. Uh, in order to have these storms, you need to have stronger wind shear. And wind shear is essentially just, uh, there's two different types of wind shear. You can have what we call speed shear, which is uh, the speeds of winds change as you go up off the surface of the, the earth. Um, so they get stronger and stronger. And there's also directional shear. Um, so as you move off the, the surface of the earth, uh, the winds will change direction with height. Um, So those are two types of shear, and those are largely driven by temperature gradients um, in the different mid-levels and upper levels of the atmosphere. Um, So as as we see increased uh, temperatures at, at those levels, we might actually see potentially see a decrease in the amount of wind shear. Um, So that's kind of the two, you might have increased instability at one side of it, but you might have decreased shear on the other side. So that's just one areas uh, or a couple areas that I guess a lot of the researchers are looking at currently uh, and try to get a better understanding of how those uh, can essentially cancel each other out, or maybe they won't. Maybe we'll actually see an increase in severe and convective storm activity because we have more instability and higher moisture content. Uh, so, just some some things uh, that we're looking at, and and ultimately, uh, I think as over the next several years, we'll have a much under, better understanding of of how this could all evolve from a severe and convective storm perspective. It's certainly certainly a challenging uh, challenging question, challenging. Um, thing to consider. And there's, like I mentioned, there's still a lot of research going into it today.
0: Yeah. And and just fascinating. And I think, I mean, with climate change, so much is changing and so much is unknown. So yeah, only time will tell that we really start to learn more on, on what the full impact could be. So, well, absolutely, Curtis, this has been so great. Thank you for bringing your passion and bringing your excitement and sharing with us too. not only I guess the scientific side of things, um, and and how what you do, even though it might be crazy with your storm chasing career, it really has a good behind it because it's it's really trying to understand what's happening to ultimately help protect people, um, so that we can learn more about these these storms. So thank you for sharing that and for joining me today on Core Conversations, a Core Logic podcast.
1: Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. And I'll have to work on getting you out to uh, Oklahoma soon to uh, see a tornado.
0: Or not. So, <laughs> <laughs> so for more information on the property market and the housing economy, please visit corelogic.com slash insights. And for more information on natural catastrophe events and even sometimes images from Curtis when he's out storm chasing, visit us at hazardhq.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed our latest episode. Please remember to leave us a review and let us know your thoughts and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to be notified when new episodes are released. And thanks again to the team for helping bring this podcast to life. Producer Rhea Tarakia, editor and sound engineer Romy Roman, and social media guru Mike Wojcik. Tune in next time for another Core Conversation.